Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 92. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on October 13th, 2022, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. The last episode I put up was an encore presentation of the Columbus Day sidebar we did last year. That was episode 91 in the counter, but I didn't edit the audio file, so if you only listen to it without reading the show notes, it came as episode 42 or something like that. Apparently, numbering episodes is not my strong suit. Anyway, this is episode 92, as Apple counts it, not counting the two introductions. The next time I do an encore, I'll record a new introduction to avoid just such confusion. The year is 1623. The English settlements at both Plymouth and Virginia have confronted and survived existential crises, which we covered in the last few episodes on the timeline. We're not ready to put a bow around either Plymouth or Virginia. Quite a bit more will happen in both places over the next few decades. But for now, we've reached their respective end-of-season finales, so to speak. For the next decade or more, most of the action will take place in New England, New York, and New Jersey, where things are getting a lot more complicated. Before we get to that, though, I do want to give a shout-out to Jeff from Hingham, Massachusetts. Hingham's right next door to Weymouth, and Weymouth sits on the site of the doomed Wessagusset Settlement and the Massachusetts villages in close proximity, which we discussed at some length in The Pilgrim's Play for Keeps a couple of episodes back. Jeff went over to the site of the Wessagusset Settlement and took a bunch of pictures, which I will put up in a separate blog post on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. For those of you who like going to historical sites but won't get to Weymouth anytime soon. Thank you, Jeff, and anybody else who sees something historical they think's interesting along the timeline and wants to send some pictures, please go ahead and do so. New England and today's New York and New Jersey are going to get quite busy over the third decade of the 1600s. Or, I should say, busier. They were, of course, already quite crowded with Algonquin and Iroquoian tribal groups, all of whom had experience with Europeans to varying degrees, over the 99 years since Giovanni de Verrazzano sailed up the coast for France in 1524. Long-standing listeners with astounding memories will recall that Verrazzano spent time in both New York Harbor, where he met Lenape tribes, and Narragansett Bay, where he met Narragansetts, neither of whom had apparently encountered Europeans before. But in the long years between Verrazzano and Henry Hudson's voyage up the river that now bears his name in 1609, the Narragansetts and other New England tribes had far more interaction with Europeans than the Lenapes, who lived in the lower Hudson Valley, New Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania, and Delaware. Their experience with Europeans was either indirect, via trade for European goods with New England tribes, or haphazard, probably with European fishermen that occasionally ventured south of New England. As most of you know, the documented voyages of exploration between Verrazano and Hudson, Champlain, Smith, and the earlier English explorers, are not known to have sailed much south of Martha's Vineyard. 
All that would change in the years following Hudson's voyage. Recall that he had sailed the half moon as far north as the Albany area and had numerous encounters, both commercial and hostile, with both the Lenape and Mahican tribal groups along the river. Hudson himself was on what lawyers call a frolic and a detour. He'd been charged by his Dutch employers to search for a northeast passage to Asia over Norway and Russia, but had turned around in the face of adverse weather and sailed to North America instead, triggering something of a diplomatic kerfuffle between England, which claimed the Mid-Atlantic as its own, and the Dutch Republic. The Dutch, however, got over their irritation at Hudson when he heard his report of the Hudson Valley and the possibility of lucrative trade with the tribes in the region. Wealthy investors in the Netherlands became interested in settling the region, whether or not England objected. Very attentive listeners will recall, for example, that the Dutch offered to sponsor the Leiden Separatists, our friends the Mayflower Pilgrims, who turned them down because one of their objectives was to raise their children as English. The pilgrims were worried that Dutch ownership of their project would make it harder for them to reestablish themselves as Englishmen in good standing. As a result, they ended up taking money from the now notorious Thomas Weston. The new Dutch interest in North America emerged in a fairly complicated geopolitical and commercial context, In rough terms, and at the great risk of generalizing too much, four factors converged in the first two decades of the 17th century. First, the Dutch had emerged as an immensely wealthy trading nation. The Dutch East India Company, known by the initials of its unpronounceable Dutch name as the VOC, had been chartered in 1602 with a monopoly on trade between the Dutch Republic and Asia. It was astonishingly successful. It's important to understand the VOC, even though it had no authority over the Americas, because it explains the new confidence of Dutch investors, merchants, and explorers during the period. The Wikipedia entry does the job. Quote, It was a powerful company, possessing quasi-governmental powers, including the ability to wage war, imprison and execute convicts, negotiate treaties, strike its own coins, and establish colonies. Statistically, the VOC eclipsed all of its rivals in the Asia trade. Between 1602 and 1796, the VOC sent almost a million Europeans to work in the Asia trade, on 4,785 ships and netted for their efforts more than 2.5 million tons of Asian trade goods. By contrast, the rest of Europe combined sent only 882,412 people from 1500 to 1795, and the fleet of the English, later British, East India Company, the VOC's nearest competitor, was a distant second to its total traffic, with 2,690 ships and a mere one-fifth the tonnage of goods carried by the VOC. The VOC enjoyed huge profits from its spice monopoly through most of the 17th century. Having been set up in 1602 to profit from the Moluccan spice trade, the VOC established a capital in the port city of Jayakarta in 1609, and changed the city name into Batavia, now Jakarta. 
Over the next two centuries, the company acquired additional ports as trading bases and safeguarded their interests by taking over surrounding territory. It remained an important trading concern and paid an 18% annual dividend for almost 200 years. Back to me. By some estimates, the VOC was the most valuable multinational corporation ever to exist. One estimate put its market capitalization in today's terms at $7.8 trillion at the peak. If that's a valid estimate, that would make it a bit more valuable than Apple, Saudi Aramco, Microsoft, and Google combined. The four most valuable companies in the world, as I write these words, on October 7th, 2022. In fairness, that would make anybody cocky. Second, in 1609, the Dutch Republic and Spain negotiated a 12-year truce in their long war, which had been dragging on for 45 years. Elizabethan England had been the greatest ally of the Dutch for most of that time, but James I had made peace with Spain. The English and the Dutch were increasingly rivals and competitors, even though it would be years before they started shooting at each other. James especially regarded the Dutch as, shall we say, nettlesome. Third, on the back of the VOC's staggering success and because of the pressure of the war with Spain, the Dutch had become the world's premier naval power, exceeding even the English. Finally, Europeans had begun to realize the tremendous value in the North American fur trade. The French had been the first to understand its value, Paris and its fashions being influential even then. And until the English set up colonies in New England, they had a geographical advantage. The fur trade was seasonal. It was best to buy beaver and other furs in the spring because the pelts were much better after the long North American winter. But it was still dangerous to cross the Atlantic before spring. Recall that the most reliable route to North America still involves sailing south to the Canaries and then picking up the westerlies to the Caribbean and sailing up the eastern seaboard of today's United States. Ships leaving from France had a significant jump on ships from England and Holland. So if everybody left port when the seas calmed in the early European spring, the French would get to New England first and get the best stuff. The English and the Dutch would be left picking through the remainder pile and would be negotiating with Indians who'd already loaded up on the European trade goods they coveted, such as metal axes and knives, copper kettles, and European textiles. John Smith and others had pointed out this very dynamic in arguing for the English colonization of that coast. Hudson had seen an opportunity for the Dutch. By settling the Hudson Valley, they could in effect trade with Indians along that river, who had access to networks that stretched all the way to the Great Lakes, just as the French were doing from Quebec on the St. Lawrence. He had seen where the Mohawk River flowed into the Hudson just north of Albany. It was not hard for the sharp entrepreneurs in Amsterdam to figure out that if they settled in today's New York, they could insert themselves between the English and the Iroquoian tribes with the best access to pelts. This was the economic basis for the founding of New Netherland and its capital on the island of Manhattan, New Amsterdam. The Dutch would start and manage settlements in today's United States as early as 1614 or 1615, when they set up their first tiny settlement, really a trading post, on an island in the Hudson River near Albany, which they called Fort Nassau. It would be flooded twice by the rising river during the spring thaw and abandoned by 1618. 
They would continue to trade in the region over the next few years, but would not resume organized settlement until 1623, the true beginning of New Netherland. The Dutch ran settlements and small outposts in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island for the next 40 years until they surrendered them to the English in 1664 at the end of the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Notwithstanding the significant presence of the Dutch in the mid-Atlantic states for 40 years in the 17th century, New Netherland was given short shrift in the history of the Americans until very recently. There are no fewer than 13 general surveys of American history heaped up around my chair, and New Netherlands gets very little attention in any of them. Three don't mention New Netherlands at all, including that of George Bancroft, who wrote the first such general history in the 19th century. The rest simply mention the Dutch as an aside, usually having to do with the famous purchase of Manhattan Island from the Lenape, which we will get into, or by noting only that the English acquired New Amsterdam and renamed it New York. Starting in roughly the 1990s, however, New Netherland became something of a hot topic among early colonial historians. By then, many of the early Dutch documents that had languished in the archives of New York State and in the Netherlands were being translated into English, and that opened the door for historians of 17th century America who had not learned how to read manuscripts in 400-year-old Dutch. Dissertations and academic papers were written. And then in 2004, a journalist named Russell Shorto published the only popular history of New Netherland, the island at the center of the world, the epic story of Dutch Manhattan and the forgotten colony that shaped America. Then in 2009, the Dutch historian, Jaap Jacobs, who's had a distinguished academic career in both the United States and the Netherlands, published The Colony of New Netherland, a Dutch Settlement in 17th Century America. Both books made the history of New Netherland much more accessible for American readers, including me. History podcasters have taken advantage of all this work. The really nice podcast, The Other States of America History Podcast by Eric Yanis, covered New Netherland over 16 episodes, something like 12 hours of podcast time, which sounds like something I would do, but won't. I could not possibly surpass Eric's work, which I highly recommend. Link in the show notes. I will, of course, listen to my muse, but the General goal is to position New Netherland within the broader settlement of the northeastern United States and the wider geopolitics of the age. There are at least four ways to think about the New Netherland period, and probably more. First, the Dutch of New Netherland might be seen as a third force in the region of New England, along with the English and the various tribal groups. There's been some interesting stuff written on the trading patterns involving the Dutch, and there are some Dutch narratives that give us our earliest glimpses of the Iroquoian tribes at home in their villages at peace. Let me do an episode or part of one on those topics. Second, New Netherland might be considered as a component, even if a relatively minor one, of a broader Dutch mercantile empire stretching to every corner of the Atlantic and even around Africa, across the Indian Ocean and into the Pacific. For example, New Amsterdam would become home to the largest African population on the continent, exceeding even St. Augustine. In 1660, blacks would exceed a quarter of the population of the future New York City, 
and only about 20% of them were enslaved. The Dutch West India Company, which was chartered right after the expiration of the truce with Spain in 1621, was no doubt capitalized on the hope that it could duplicate the profitability of the VOC. Third, New Netherland might be seen as a failed colony in North America with little downstream consequence in our history, or as a foil for the English colonies, significant mostly as the thing that came before New York. This was indeed how New Netherland was treated by historians for most of our history. In a review essay published in 1993, historian Karen Ordahl Kupperman wrote that, quote, Dutch colonization and the continuing Dutch presence has constituted an uncomfortable, somewhat indigestible lump in early American history, for whatever that's worth. In the almost 30 years since, however, there's been a lot of new scholarship on New Netherland, but even recently published national histories don't have much to say about it. Finally, one might look at New Netherland as an underdiscussed political, cultural, and economic rootstock of today's United States. The Dutch were the first small-R Republicans to come to today's United States, and they founded its most important city. Their settlements were, paradoxically, assets for the English to covet and eventually take over, paving the way for the states of New York, New Jersey, and Delaware. Had there been no Dutch, much of the Mid-Atlantic would have evolved differently. And of course, you have the Dutch to thank for many words in American English. Do you ever wonder why we eat cookies and the English eat biscuits? Blame or thank the Dutch. Tens of thousands of Americans, mostly in New York and New Jersey, were raised speaking Dutch at home well into the 19th century, 200 years after the English took control of the Dutch settlements. And, of course, there are many millions of Americans with Dutch in their names or the names of ancestors within memory. My great-great-grandfather was named William Van Duzer Lawrence. While I have not exactly nailed his ancestry to the 17th century, he almost certainly descended from the Van Dusens, who came here in the days of New Netherland. So without New Netherland, you would not be listening to this podcast. Okay, one final bit of nomenclature to get out of the way before we get to the actual colonization. The Dutch names for the main rivers of the region, which will crop up in the narratives, the Dutch assigned simple names to the main aquatic thoroughfares of New Netherland. The Delaware River, which forms the border between Pennsylvania and New Jersey, was the South River to the Dutch. The Hudson River, which was navigable from Albany to Manhattan, was the North River. And the Connecticut River, which bisects Connecticut between East and West and defines the border between Vermont and New Hampshire all the way down from Canada, was the Fresh River. The Dutch sailed up the North River, the Hudson, during the first few years after Hudson, but we don't know much about those voyages. What we do know is that they all sought the only really valuable commodity in the region, furs, and that the various traders were affiliated with one of two Dutch companies, the Von Tweenhuizen Company and the Hans Klesch Company. Apologies all around for the pronunciation. The two groups competed with each other, hoping for a bigger quantity of furs to offset the enormous fixed costs of the voyage. But in bidding up the prices, they would pay to the Indians, whose entire culture was built around trading relationships. 
the Dutch damaged their own profitability. By 1614, they were in negotiations to collude against the Indians by acting cooperatively. They would pay a fixed price for furs and divide the profits from the year's voyages by an agreed percentage, 50-50, 60-40, that sort of thing, by presenting what economists call a monopsony, a monopolistic buyer, they could, in theory, keep prices low by stiffing the Indians and thereby make more money in any given fur season. The problem with this arrangement, however, is that it was inherently unstable. There would be incentives both to cheat and to free ride. The incentive to cheat was obvious. Buy and sell furs without recording the transactions and you keep all the profits. The incentive to free ride is less obvious, but also real. If you pool the economic benefit from an activity, people just don't work as hard. Both Jamestown and Plymouth would figure that out in the next few years. Collective trading isn't as catastrophic as collective farming because it usually doesn't lead to starvation, but it involves the same flawed incentives. Anyway, this arrangement led to a series of fairly predictable failures. Other companies sprang up, and they had to be roped into the quota system. Then, once in the new world, as mishaps piled up, the various firms would try to renegotiate the split of the profits on the fly. Eventually, the owners did what owners do and petitioned the States General of the Dutch Republic to grant and enforce a monopoly. In 1614, the now four companies pooled their trading assets into a single company with defined share ownership, the New Netherland Company. An effective January 1st, 1615, still some weeks before John Rolfe and Pocahontas would give birth to their bouncing baby boy Thomas down in Virginia, the Dutch Republic granted the New Netherland Company the exclusive right to trade for furs on the Hudson and Connecticut rivers for three years. This arrangement mostly worked, and the Dutch presented a largely unified front in bargaining with the Indians until 1618. The best furs came from colder regions, down Indian trading networks all the way from the Great Lakes. In late 1614, early 1615, the Dutch explorer Hendrik Christensen set up a small trading settlement known as Fort Nassau on an island in the Hudson just off today's Albany. It would persist for less than four years, twice being wiped out by flooding that followed the spring thaw in the Adirondacks. Notwithstanding its ultimate failure, Fort Nassau would be the first intentionally permanent settlement in today's New York, and at least technically, the beginning of New Netherland. In 1618, the New Netherland Company's patent expired. By then, the movers and shakers in Amsterdam were looking ahead to the expiration of the 12-year truce with Spain. They had begun to discuss the establishment of a Dutch West India Company, modeled on the VOC, just like the VOC, it would combine aggressive trading and privateering power. As a result, said movers and shakers did not want to extend the New Netherland Company's monopoly on trade in New York and New England. So the Dutch merchants would start competing again, driving down profits and driving up risks. Again, we don't know much about this period, but one encounter suggests what the climate was like. Early in 1619, as Squanta was trying to arrange a ride from England to his home in Patuxet, Indians attacked the Dutch ship Black Bear near Governor's Island in today's New York Harbor, killing the captain and most of his crew. 
Sadly, I was not able to learn how the Lenape killed so many Dutchmen or the reason for the attack. Five crewmen survived the attack and held the ship, and when another Dutch ship appeared in the harbor, they got their ride home. Unfortunately for the Black Bear's owners, with the patent gone and the new Netherland company effectively disbanded, the new arrivals seized the Black Bear's cargo for trade with the Indians and took the ship as their own. Litigation ensued. The English had not protested the chartering of the New Netherland Company, but everything had changed by 1621 when the States General authorized the West India Company. Recall that in 1614, John Smith had not even explored and mapped the coast and had not yet named New England, and the Pilgrims had not landed there. Now they had. The new charter granted the WIC a Dutch monopoly on trade, colonization, and shipping in the Americas and West Africa. The English ambassador to the Dutch Republic, Sir Dudley Carleton, filed an official complaint with the States General regarding the implicit claim to New Netherland, fundamentally a small component of the ambitious company, based upon the claim of the English crown through right of discovery. The English and the Dutch had very different ideas about rights and territory, though neither of them were much concerned with the precedent rights of the local tribes. The English took the view that if they saw it first, it was theirs, and they defined seeing it first very expansively. Eventually, the English would argue that they had rights in the Mid-Atlantic region because John Cabot had stepped on Newfoundland in 1497, and because Henry Hudson was English. The Dutch, no doubt, rolled their eyes at the Cabot claim. Not only was Newfoundland an island, but it was almost 800 miles as the super crow flies from Albany, the northernmost point of the Dutch claim, and the southwestern corner of Newfoundland. Regarding the Hudson claim, the Dutch pointed out quite reasonably that the English had fired Hudson, and that he was sailing with a Dutch crew on a Dutch ship paid for by Dutch investors. The Dutch had a different idea. The claim must be founded upon actual settlement. And so they put together a plan to establish four settlements of at least 50 colonists, each at different places. Unfortunately, we know much less about this project than we ought to know, because the archives of the West India Company were cleaned out and sold as scrap paper in the early 19th century. See, folks, recycling is not all good. The history of this period, therefore, has to be stitched together from documents that survived that crime against posterity, correspondence that survived commercial records such as sailing schedules of ships and bills of lading, that sort of thing. We do know that it took the West India Company a couple of years to raise enough money to support its commercial and paramilitary obligations, including the settlement of New Netherland. Given the success of the VOC, it is perhaps surprising that it took so long. Historians have speculated that prospective investors might have been initially deterred by the reasonable concern that the company's pursuit of profits would be secondary to torturing Spain. Eventually, though, the West India Company raised a lot of money, seven million guilders in equity, making it perhaps the most well-capitalized startup in history up to that point. By 1626, an inventory of the company's property addressed to the directors of the company included 
per Russell Shorto, quote, Twelve ships and yachts destined for the African trade in Guinea, Benin, Angola, Gray, and Kwakwa coasts, with the exported cargoes and expected returns. One ship of Dordrecht to Cape Verde with cargo. One ship destined for the trade of the Amazon and the coast of Guinea. One ship of about 130 lasts, that's 260 tons. One yacht well-equipped, destined for trade and colonization of New Netherland. 33 ships, which the company still hath lying here in port, provided with metal and iron guns and all sorts of supplies of ammunition of war, powder, muskets, arms, sabers, and whatever may be necessary for the equipment, which can be fitted for sea. Monies, which being in the treasury, will be applied to keep the foregoing ships at sea, not only to injure the king of Spain, but also, by God's blessing, to do your high mightinesses and the company much service and the partners good profit. As a former corporate tool, I'm quite relieved that I did not have to address my directors as high mightinesses, although I'm quite sure that some of them would have been delighted if I had. Long-standing and even slightly attentive listeners will recall that the English had been pouring settlers into Virginia since 1607. They'd been able to recruit people from the ranks of their chronically unemployed and underemployed and entice them to the banks of the James, notwithstanding its 80% mortality rate. Not so for the Dutch. Let's go to Shorto, quote, Of course, settlers were required, and raising them proved to be one of the hardest aspects of the whole complex business of creating an Atlantic empire. Times were good in the homeland. The future looked even better. And Amsterdam was probably the best place in the world to be poor, its almshouses, wrote an English council with some exaggeration, were more like princes' palaces than lodgings for poor people. To get people to sign on for a passage to what was now being called New Netherland, they had to find those who were ignorant or desperate or poor enough to leave the deeply civilized bosom of Amsterdam with its paved streets, its scrubbed floors, its wheels of cheese and tankards of excellent beer, its fluffy pillows and blue and white tiled hearths and cozy peat fires, and venture to the back of the beyond, to the absolute and unforgiving wilderness. Back to me. If you ever have to set the dial on your time machine for the early 17th century, make sure you set Amsterdam as the location. Anyway, while the Dutch had very few poor citizens, they did have refugees. These were Walloons, French-speaking refugees from the lands that today constitute Belgium. The company wanted these colonies to be self-sustaining, so they made sure that there was one woman for every man, a wise innovation given the experiences of the Spanish, French, and English. The first colonization ship sailed in 1624, Skipper Cornelius May, after whom Cape May, New Jersey is named, married four couples at sea. Another couple, the Walloon Catalina Trico and the Flemish-born Joris Rapalier, married in Amsterdam on January 25, 1624. 
He was 19, she was 18, and neither had parents to sign the Dutch marriage registry. Joris and Catalina would, like John Howland, become the ancestors of millions of Americans. Let's go back to Shorto for his account. Quote, Considering the stupendous dangers awaiting them, first at sea and then on arrival, it wasn't a union a betting man would likely lay money on. And yet, 60 years later, when the English colonies of Pennsylvania and Maryland were embroiled in a border dispute and needed evidence of Christian occupation of certain lands along the eastern seaboard, the representatives of William Penn found an old woman to testify who was known to have been among the first European settlers. Catalina Trico, now in her 80s, was a widow. But she and Joris had had a long and fruitful marriage. The records of New England show them among the first buyers of land in the wilderness of southern Manhattan, building two houses on Pearl Street, steps away from the fort, obtaining a milk cow, borrowing money from the provincial government, moving their homestead to a large tract of farmland across the river in the new village of Brooklyn, and giving birth to and baptizing 11 children. Their first, Sarah, was considered the first European born in what would become New York. In 1656, at the age of 30, she proclaimed herself firstborn Christian daughter of New Netherland. She was born in 1625, and the same records duly show her marriage in 1639 to the overseer of a tobacco plantation in what would become Greenwich Village, and in turn, the birth of her eight children. Over the course of the brief life of New Netherland and into the history of New York, the Rapalier children and their offspring would spread across the region. In the 1770s, John Rapalier would serve as a member of the New York State Assembly. Their descendants have been estimated at upwards of one million. And in the Hudson Valley town of Fishkill, New York, a lane called Rapalier Road is a quiet suburban testament to the endurance of a long-ago slapdash wedding of two young nobodies on the Amsterdam waterfront, which, as much as any political event, marked the beginning of the immigrant, stake-your-claim civilization, not only of Manhattan, but of America. Back to me. On the math, there's a very high probability that among the listeners to this podcast, there are descendants of Joris and Catalina. Among their descendants not still living was, for my money, the consummate American actor, Humphrey Bogart. No New Netherland, no Casablanca, and no Key Largo. This is a great place to stop right now. Next time, we'll see what happened when all these Dutch and Walloons arrived in New York Harbor. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a top rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast if you do that sort of thing. Until next time. <laughs>